Would you please take your Bibles with me as we turn to the Word of God in our study and return to our study of the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 22. I heard recently in the news of a story of a boy who who said that he lived a previous life. Other than the life he currently lives, I think he was 10 or so now, he said he lived a, a previous life than the one he is currently living. He said he is living a reincarnated life. Apparently, he has stated various details about this supposed previous life that seem to be accurate to some historical facts as to what he's saying. Of course, as Christians, we know those kinds of claims contradict what the Bible teaches. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 27 clearly says, in unequivocal terms, it has been appointed to man once to die and then comes judgment. So there isn't a reincarnation kind of state that mankind can have. So whatever this young boy is saying is not true. Because if God's word is true, because God is true, then whatever God says about life, both here and in the future, is also true. And so from just that, we know that this boy's story cannot be true. It is a hoax. It is a fraud. It is a lie. But, if it was true... If what this young boy was saying was true, then in light of of it, in light of that kind of story, I wonder sometimes if we would now live differently than we currently live if we knew or had some relative understanding or truth about reincarnation. In other words, would the news have an effect on us? Would that kind of news shape us in some kind of way that whereby we might edit our lives and how we live our lives because of that news? You see, some of the things we do, some of the things we enjoy or some of the things we say would probably change in light of what this boy is saying if it was true, because of our new knowledge, of our new understanding of this potential life or reincarnation. What we do now, what we say, how we live, potentially would be adjusted if what he was saying is true. In fact, in countries that believe in incarnation or reincarnation, I should say, like India, they live very differently. Because of reincarnation, because of this belief. In fact, cows and, and other animals, even, even the fly, are sacred. Why? Because to kill one of those animals would potentially mean that you are possibly killing a future relative. Because they lived before and now have come back as one of those. So this story, and that's what the boy is telling, a story, it's not true, even if he's adamant about the facts or about the story itself and believes it himself. But over the past several months, in fact, in fact, it's been a total of 72 Sundays, we have heard about and looked at a true vision given by the Apostle John. It's come to him from God himself, concerning the future of all of us. Concerning our future. And the central focus of all of it has been one person, Jesus Christ. The uncovering, the revealing, the the, uh, un masking, if you will, in any kind of way, the great glory to come in Jesus Christ and because of Jesus Christ and to Jesus Christ. And unlike the boy's story of future life, what we have read over the last 72 Sundays 
and have studied is absolutely true. Not because John has said it, but because God has said it. And just as those who wrongly believe in reincarnation have adjusted their lives because of it, so too there are adjustments that we must make as well in light of what we now know and now understand. To not make these adjustments, in fact, is the height of foolish pride. To after having heard what says through the Apostle John concerning the future and not to adjust your life accordingly and by it is to be of the utmost at the highest level a fool. The Apostle John's description of the absolute perfection of our future home as Christians in our study is now complete. We will hear nothing more about the glories of heaven. It is ended. And his description is reminding all of us who believe upon Jesus Christ that we will in fact reign with Him forever. Just by way of reminder, chapter 22 and verse 5. And there shall no longer be any night, and they shall not have need of light of the lamp nor the light of the sun. Why? Because the Lord God shall illumine them, and they, that is the saints, those who see His face, as it says in verse 4, they shall reign forever and ever. What a glorious position for us to have. What an undeserved place for us who have been drawn to God by His divine wooing to come to His Son, Jesus Christ, and express faith in Jesus Christ so that we might live. What a, what a glorious privilege we have. All the purposes of God, as we see throughout all of history, all the purposes of God are now realized in redemption in those very few words. All the purposes of God throughout all of history in regard to the resurrection are now realized in those words. All of God's great purposes for all of His children and all who He will save for glorification are realized in those words. We will be part of His administrative rule in His New world from his new Jerusalem. And in light of all that we have seen and all that we have learned about the tribulation and the new future, there are now three final paragraphs that bring before us three different exhortations. Three different exhortations. And the three exhortations revolve all around a phrase that you and I must never forget. This has to be implanted and emblazoned upon our mind and must be there every single day. And the phrase is simply this. It's found in verse 7 and in verse 12 and in verse 20. And it is this, I am coming quickly. Verse 12, I am coming quickly. Verse 20, yes, I am coming quickly. In other words, there's an absolute certainty in the words of God Himself, Jesus Christ, the Incarnate One, there's an absolute certainty of this reality of His coming. Just as... This book has shown us from chapter 1 all the way to chapter 22. There is a certainty to the coming of Jesus Christ. It will not be delayed. It will not be canceled. It will not be changed. It is coming quickly, Christ said. Quickly, uh, the original word taku, T-A-C-H-U, if you want to spell it in your own uh, letters, taku, it, it simply means just that, without delay. I, a couple of weeks ago, flew out to California on an airline that I hoped would be without delay. Unfortunately, it was with a two-hour delay. 
We can book trips on planes. We can take trips on trains. We can go by automobile just around the corner or around the world. But we do not have a guarantee that when we do those things, they will be without delay. But Jesus Christ's return will be undelayed. It will be quickly. And so John, Jesus Christ is saying to John, in light of that, in light of that reality, every person, everyone, believer and unbeliever alike, are exhorted in these final paragraphs to exercise several things. And the first overarching category, the first overarching reality is this. We must exercise a human responsibility. A human responsibility. You can put that as the title of your outline because we're just going to hang out in that part of it. The following weeks we'll see a divine reward and a spiritual responsibility. But this morning we're going to just talk about this human responsibility. Notice... In Revelation chapter 22, beginning in verse 6. And he said to me, these words are faithful and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show his bondservants the things which must shortly take place. Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. And I, John, and the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who, who showed me these things. And he said to me, do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who heed the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the one who does wrong still do wrong. Let the one who is filthy still be filthy. Let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness. Let the one who is holy still keep himself holy. And we can stop right there because this is the reality and exhortation to all of us in reference to our human responsibility to all that we have heard, to all that we have seen. Now, I, I need to say at the outset so that we're not confused, uh, there's not just one person speaking here in this text. In fact, there are three that are speaking. First, the angel is speaking in verse 6. Then Jesus will speak in verse 7. Then in verses 8 and 9, or in 8, John speaks. In 9 through 11, the angel speaks again. So you have the angel speaking, you have Jesus speaking, and you have John speaking. So don't let that confuse you as you walk through this. So in light of all of that, and in light of all that we've learned over the last 72 times we've been in the books of Re- book of Revelation... Each one here has a human responsibility. All of us as human beings have a responsibility in light of all the things we have heard. And the first way that this human responsibility is to be exercised is in this way. Number one, do not doubt the vision of John. Do not doubt the vision of John, verse 6, and he said to me, these words are faithful and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show to his bondservants the things which must shortly take place. So incredible, so amazing have the things been that we have seen. That God has shown us all the way from chapter 1, all the way through chapters uh, 21. So overwhelming has it been to us and 
overwhelming it was to John the Apostle that this angel has to remind him and remind all of us that what we have seen and what we have heard said is faithful and true. Faithful and true. It seems almost overly simplistic, doesn't it? That God, by His grace and because of His mercy, would come to the end of all that He's told us about the future of our glorious home and all that will happen with those who reject Him. And the first thing He seems to see necessary that we hear is to do not doubt these words. This is a simple reminder to us. These things are true. Why? Because the human tendency for us and the human heart, especially one bent on sin and one bent on rejection of God, is to doubt the truthfulness of what God said. You say, I I don't doubt God. Yes, we do. We all doubt God. We may not doubt God in an intellectual understanding of God, but we doubt God in a practical way because every time we do not obey God, we're doubting what God said for us to be good and right and what is best. So we do doubt God. Why? Because the tendency is to do that because the human heart, the flesh of man, doesn't believe God. And so the tendency is to deny. The tendency is to say, no, there's got to be something different. There's got to be something uh, changed in all of this. To offer some kind of, of potential human explanation for what is supernatural. To offer some kind of human philosophy as to what all of this is saying. Let me look for the codes. Let me find the hidden message behind the allegories and all of these kinds of things that are developed by the mind of men rather than simply taking God at His Word. Because He is God. And because as God, He cannot lie. And so God says to us through the angel, these words are faithful. These words are faithful. Not because John saw them or because John followed the exact command of God back in chapter 1 to write these things down, to be faithful to write these things down. Even as we saw in our study, he had to be sometimes exhorted to get out of the the, the mindset of, of looking at all of this and be reminded, you need to write this down, don't forget to do that. But that's not why these are faithful words. No, these are faithful because the God who gave them and the God who is executing them is faithful. You see, to deny these words is to deny God Himself. You say, well, I've never thought about eschatology that way. Well, you need to. These are faithful words. Words to deny the faithful reality of what these words say is to deny the one who gave them. It is to deny the words. These words, that means the whole book. The whole book. And by further implication, the whole Bible is faithful. It's not just revelation. It's the whole Bible. All of it is faithful to reject in any way what the Scriptures say and what the Scriptures teach is to reject the God of the Scriptures. Why? Because He's faithful. He's faithful by His very character. You know what faithful means? Here it is. One word. Trustworthy. Trustworthy. Paul said to Timothy, look, take these words and entrust them to faithful men who will be able to do the same. The trickle-down effect of truth. Imparting the truth to faithful men who will tell others about these things of truth. Who will be trustworthy to do the same thing with what they have been given. This is the character of our very God. He is trustworthy. And all of it is trustworthy the angel says it is faithful and notice true true means genuine genuine it's not only trustworthy but it is in its trustworthiness it is genuine 
means that every detail, every word is dependable. It's all dependable. It's all trustworthy. It's all genuine. You can count on it. It's not fake. It's not a lie. It's not a script for a motion picture. And so because of that, we have a human responsibility to not doubt it. Notice what John says. These words are faithful and true and the Lord, that is the master, the king, the God of the spirits of the prophets. Sent his angel to show to his bondservants the things which must shortly take place. I love the way this is said. Because John says here, he writes down what the angel tells him. And and the angel says, listen, the words you have written, the things you have seen, they are genuine, they are faithful, they are trustworthy, they are true. Why? Because the God who spoke long ago to the prophets in the Old Testament from the time time began as Scripture begins to be written, that same God who is the same God who has dispatched in this moment His angel to show you these things about your future. It's the same God. It's the God who is the God of the spirits of the prophets. You see, the point being made by this angel is that the God who acted through the Old Testament prophets in bringing his message to the men of the Old Testament, the same God who, who on that mountain with Moses wrote with his very hand the Ten Commandments. Moses brought down to the people and then the, the law was disseminated to the people. That God is the very same God who acted here to show us, His servants, these things of the future. You say, okay, I understand that. What's the implication? Well, here's the implication. To doubt any part of God's Word is to doubt all of God's Word. To doubt any part of God's word is to doubt all of God's words. In other words, the sum of the parts make up the whole. We cannot accept one part and reject another and say that we are worshiping the God of the Bible. It is the same God who has given it all. It is the same God, the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, the one who sent his angel in the current moment as John is writing this to tell his bondservants what must take place Shortly, to reject any part is to reject God. So to doubt part of this prophecy, to doubt any part of the Word of God, is to reject the God of the Bible. 2 Timothy 3.16, right? All Scripture is God-breathed. All of it. Even those parts that seem to not make sense to us to how those could be profitable to us like in Genesis chapter 5 when you read about the genealogies and so and so died 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 how can that be profitable to us God says it is therefore it is even if we don't understand it so do not reject God by doubting what this book says That's the first human responsibility. Don't doubt the vision. Don't doubt it. Believe it. It's faithful. It is true. Second, the second human responsibility is this. Proactively, proactively guard this vision. Proactively guard. Guard this vision. Notice verse 7. Jesus, of course, speaking. And behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. Behold, I am coming quickly. Therefore, there is blessing to the one who heeds the words of this prophecy. Now you say, well, that doesn't sound like an exhortation to guard this vision. Let me explain. The word heed 
is better translated, I believe, in the English by the word keep. Keep. And the word keep carries the idea. We, we don't often use it like this. Maybe we should use it like this because this is how it originally was meant. The word, it carries the idea when, when someone allows their life to be controlled by something else. In other words, if I said, I have been kept by a proper diet. If I said that, what I, what I mean is that I have lived my life by eating the things that promote a good diet uh, for the body. I have been kept by a good diet. I have been controlled by. I have been uh, orchestrating my life according to that. So when Jesus says here, blessed is the one who heeds the words of this prophecy, he is saying, blessed is the life who is controlled by the words of this book. Best is the li- blessed is the life who is kept by the words of this book. In other words, Jesus Christ is pronouncing that when this book is believed, and when the truth of this book controls the life of the one who believes it, that life is a blessed life. The word blessed carries the idea of happiness, true happiness. So to proactively guard this vision is to heed the words of this vision. You want to guard this vision? You want to proactively guard this vision? Then then have the words of this vision control your very life. Believe this vision and live your life according to what this vision says about Jesus Christ. This isn't just a book about the future. Certainly it contains all kinds of information about the future history of the world, but it isn't just a book about the future in order to fill curiosity and go, oh, wow, that's curious. What an interesting fact those things are. It isn't for your curiosity to wonder, oh, I wonder when this is going to happen. When's the time this is going to happen? When are the dates this is going to happen? Have some kind of secret knowledge that nobody else has. No. This is a book about Jesus Christ. It's a book about Jesus Christ and our life with or without Him in the future. And our obedience to Christ in light of what this book says about Him. That's what this book is about. You and I will guard this vision by living according to it. By the way, the word heed here, or the word keep, is a continuous practice, a continuous action. That just means it's ongoing, it never stops. It isn't, I'll heed it today and not tomorrow, I'll, I'll keep it today and not tomorrow. Certainly we sin, we, we are to uh, confess those things as Christians, but the reality here is this characterized, ongoing reality of keeping the words of this prophecy. All that it says concerning Jesus Christ, control my life. We just studied in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2 and 3, John said this, Beloved, now we are the children of God. That is, if you know Jesus Christ, if you have fellowship with Jesus Christ and you, you uh, believe in Him, then you have, you have faith in Christ, you, you are a child of God. John says, now we are the children of God, if that's true of us, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. He's saying, listen, we aren't currently in our glorified state here on this earth. That hasn't fully come to fruition. That hasn't fully appeared in its greatest sense. We know that when He appears, we'll be like Him. How come? How do we know that? Because we'll see Him just as He is. Sounds a lot like Revelation chapter 22, verse 4. We shall see His face. And then John says, And everyone... Who has this hope fixed on him, on Christ, purifies himself just as he is pure. John's not saying, listen, you 
you'll make sure you do everything right so that in the final day, God will be able to accept you because you somehow have figured out a way to be pure in your life. No, he's saying, listen, if you believe in Jesus Christ and you have your hope fixed on Jesus Christ and you know that one day you're going to be like him because you're going to see his face, if you have that hope fixed on Christ, you're going to live as Christ lived. You're going to live that purified, Christ God-honoring life because he is pure. And that's what Jesus is saying here in verse 7. Since he is coming quickly, since Christ is going to return without delay, keep obeying, keep living by, keep orchestrating your life with the words of this prophecy. Have your hope fixed on him. Guard it with your obedient life. Live by faith. What are you saying? Live by faith. Guard it. So we have a human responsibility. We have, number one, a responsibility to not doubt the vision. This is faithful and true. We have a responsibility to guard this vision by obeying it, by keeping it, by doing it. There's a third responsibility. A third human responsibility to these things we've learned, and that is this. Worship God because of this vision. Worship God because of this vision. Notice verses 8 and 9. And I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. John rarely has mentioned his name in this entire book, maybe a few times at the beginning. And now, here he is saying it again. He wants us to know, listen, this is true. I heard this. I saw this. It sounds just like 1 John in chapter 1. What I heard, what I saw, what I've touched, what I felt with my hands concerning the word of life. John's saying, I heard this. I saw these things. And when I heard and when I saw them, I fell down to worship. I fell down at the feet of the angel who showed me these things. The angel said to me, don't do that. I'm a fellow servant of yours, of your brother and the prophets, and of those who, notice again, heed the words of this book. So worship God. So overwhelming have these things been that John has seen and that John has heard. So overwhelming that in light of them, His immediate response, his natural reaction, his almost spontaneous reaction to what he's seen and what he's heard is to do what what any of us would do. It's not to just go, hey, let me go put my arms around my buddy Jesus. No, he does what any right-minded person would do when they've seen such glorious realities. He gives praise. And oftentimes, it's wrongly focused. John gives praise to the messenger. We know worship is our right response. We know that praise is proper. We know that we ought to praise God. We know we ought to be praising. Our hearts are headed in the right direction. But the object of our praise oftentimes gets misplaced. And that's what's going on with John here. He knows he ought to be praising, but his praise gets misplaced at the beginning. And far too often in our attempts to praise God, we are actually worshiping that which isn't God. We all have our heroes, especially those of the faith. We all have them. Heroes of the faith. Might be somebody you just know personally. Might be somebody you've read about. Might be somebody who has uh, been a champion of the faith for you. Somebody who's a mentor of yours, somebody who's faithful in their Christian life, who have taught you so much about God. We all have those. We all have our Christian mentors, our Christian heroes. If you've read any of the dead saints who have gone before you who are faithful, then you have a lot of dead heroes. They're wonderful people. We all, like Hebrews said, stand on their, their shoulders looking at all the things that are there. And sometimes we speak of them more than we actually speak of God. Sometimes we talk of them in terms that others would think they are gods. 
doesn't matter what religion people are in, we can all fall prey to venerating others. We do it, and yet here we're reminded that our worship is to be focused on only one. The angel says, don't do that, worship God. The end of verse 9. Worship, pay homage to. Give your praise to. Give honor to. In word, in deed, whatever it is, give your praise, your honor, your homage to God. Worship God because of this vision. And I love this as the angel says this because the angel takes his status in the whole thing. He has been dispatched by God. That's what angels do. Holy angels are standing ready to do whatever God bids. And God has dispatched this angel. Go tell John these things. Show John these things. And the angel takes his status. What a privileged place. And yet he takes his status not from what he has said. He takes his status from the service that was entrusted to him. He says, listen, I'm just like you. I am a fellow servant. That's it. Don't consider me great because of all these things I've shown you and all these things I've said and all these things I've taught you. Don't think I'm great because of that. I'm not great at all. The only identity I have is that alone. I am simply a fellow servant of yours. I love that. He's a servant of God. That's all. I just serve God. It's not about me. It's about God. And each one of us are, if we know Christ by faith, we are just that. We are simply undeserved servants of God. That's it. You may do whatever it is you do by your gifting as God has gifted you better than anyone else around you. Better than anyone has ever seen the worldwide. But in the end, you are simply that, just a servant of God. Worship then belongs by right to God alone. By right. So what is our human responsibility in light of this prophecy? Don't doubt. Don't doubt what God has said. Guard what is said. Through your obedience to it. Worship God alone because of it. The Apostle Paul is no better a servant than you are. The angels in heaven are no better servants than you are. Anyone who heeds the words are all in the same category. We are just fellow servants. So worship God. Worship God alone because of this. And then finally, finally, the fourth human responsibility, don't hide this vision from others. Don't hide it from others. Notice verses 10 and 11, and he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book. Because the time is near. Let the one who does wrong still do wrong. Let the one who is filthy still be filthy. Let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness. Let the one who is holy still keep himself holy. I love this final point. I love this final point because in the heart and mind of God, when it comes to the prophecy of the revelation, Jesus Christ, men are allowed to know. And we are all told what it says. And we are told, don't hide what lies ahead for the future. Don't don't shy away from letting others know about what is to come. We have two reasons why. One, the prophecy, he says, these words, notice, do not seal up these words of the prophecy. These words, that's, first of all, serving as an encouragement to those who believe. Don't hide the words of these this prophecy to those who believe because it's an encouragement to their soul. Don't hide that. The, the time is near for them. So, so that's one reason why. That's half of this. But also this prophecy serves as a warning to others. 
It's an encouragement to the believer. Those who believe. It's a warning to others. Why? Because the time is near. The time is near. That has been the words echoed from the very beginning of our study. You may not remember this. Back in chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it. Why? Because the time is near. So this little simple phrase now is the bookends on the whole thing. The time is near, so blessed is the one who reads and who hears and who heeds these things. And now at the end, we hear the same thing being said again. It, it, was a, it was a caution for us to pay attention to what was to come. And now that we've walked through all that, now it's a reminder to us to pay attention to all that we have already now seen and heard. The time is near. The season for those things to take place are close at hand. That's, that's really the literal of what that's saying. I was reading in one commentary this week. One man said it this way, quote, From the standpoint of prophecy, the towering peaks of these end time events cast their shadows across the ages. In other words, they may be future, but they are, they are such high peaks that the shadow of them cast themselves across all the ages. And so in that sense, they are near to us. The Apostle Peter reminded those to whom he was writing in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. The end of all things is at hand. It's near. It's, it's as if, Tomorrow, this is all going to take place like reading time in that way. Remember, God doesn't operate in time. He's outside of time. Tomorrow is an ever-present today with God. So Peter says to them in chapter 4, verse 7, the second part of that verse, Therefore, in light of that, the end of all things is at in light of that, therefore be self-controlled. Be controlled in your mind. Be sober-minded. Why? For the sake of your prayers. Be self-controlled. Be controlled in your mind for the sake of your praying. You who believe in God, for the absolute reliability of the Word of God and the nearness of the season of these future things puts responsibility upon all of us and there are only two possible reactions to any of the things that we've heard there's only two possible reactions notice verse 11 there is the reaction that man rejects the word let the one who does wrong still do wrong let the one who is filthy still be filthy in other words to do this does and will continue in a, in a result of, of conduct that forms and shows itself a character that deserves the destiny with which it has shown itself. If a man rejects the truth of God and he is acting in his way wrongly, Doing wrong, still going that way, it shows itself in the very character of himself in, in the reality that from man's perspective, his, his conduct is reflective of his character. If he's, if he's disbelieving, he's acting in such a way that is rejecting. Those who reject this word are described in verse 11 as wrongdoers. And then, yet, from God's perspective to man, they are described as filthy. One side is man's perspective of man, looking at man. If his, if his uh, character is wrongdoing, his conduct shows itself to be wrongdoing. And then the outworking of that from God's perspective, it is all unrighteousness, it is all filthy, and they are confirmed in that filthiness. They still... Be filthy. So they not only do what is unrighteous, that's what wrong is here, that's the word, unrighteous. 
They not only do what is unrighteous. Why? Because they have rejected the words of God concerning his son. And so from the second view, from God's view to man, they are therefore filthy. So their conduct showed in their character. And their character deserves the very destiny with which it's going. So if man rejects the word of God, he is unrighteous, not only in his very character, but in his conduct. And that characterizes him before God as being filthy. He's filthy by his very nature. And yet the opposite is also true in the second reaction to these words the first reaction reject these words the second reaction is simply this believe these words and that is also true that their conduct will form showing itself in character deserving its destiny notice and let the one who is righteous practice righteousness let the one who is holy still be kept In his holiness, notice those who believe are viewed from man to man as righteous. As a righteous character, his conduct is therefore righteous. In other words, they do what's right. So their character is seen then from God as being declared holy. They are holy before God. They are right before God. They are justified, just like those who reject The ones who believe the word, their character is reflected in their conduct. That shows their standing before the Lord. One is filthy before the Lord, one is holy. One is accepted, one is rejected. This is is Romans 1. You've read Romans 1. This is Romans 1, verses 18 and following. In picture, God giving men over to their own rejection of Him. God saying, okay, I've shown you my eternal attributes. I've shown you my greatness, my invisible uh, divineness. You've seen it through the things I've made. And now I've given you my word and you've rejected it all. So the one doing wrong, let him be in his wrongness. Have it your way. The one confirmed in his filthiness, let him remain there. Have it your way. The one righteous, let him be in his righteousness. The one who's confirmed holy because of faith in Jesus Christ, let him remain in that place of holiness. He cannot be removed. So you reject these words and you are choosing God's rejection of you. That's what it is. To reject these words is to embrace God's rejection of you for all eternity. Believe these words, which is to believe Christ, and you're seeing God's acceptance of you through His Son. That's why He could call you holy. So we can think of it all this way. The way you respond to God's Word, believe it, Or reject it. That's the only two responses. The way you respond to that. Determines your destiny. And the reality is. God's word reveals. That if you continue in your rejection of his word. Your destiny is already sealed. Because none of us are in a neutral position. And the frightening reality. Is that when all is said and done. Christ accepts that decision. There's no middle road. There's no neutral zone. There's no free space where you can just hang out a while and weigh the facts and see if one's right, see if one's not. If you have not believed, and belief there means a a an understanding, a faith in the gospel that produces a change in your life. If you have not believed, then you are currently a rejecter. You are in a position of rejecting God currently. The good news is that if you will repent of your rejection, turn from it and believe truly, 
then your status before God can be changed by God. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. That's the promise. That's the promise. It is both faithful, it is true. Not because the one who told us these things is the only one, or because, I should say, the only one who told us these things is faithful and true. That's why this is. So, the boy's story of reincarnation isn't true. It's a lie. It's a fabrication. And someday it may certainly be uncovered for what it is. But God's words are absolutely true. And they will never be uncovered as being false. So our human responsibility is to believe them. And to live according to them. To worship God because of them. And to proclaim them to others. So their reality might be our reality. They too might know God by faith. Next time, we'll see the divine reward. The divine reward. Well, let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for these things. It's amazing that you would even condescend to us to tell us the truth concerning these things so that we would even know the human responsibility that we have according to your word. You could have left us with just the revelation of your creation, which you have given to all men. They know it. They are without excuse. Your eternal attributes, divine nature have been clearly seen through what you've made. But men refuses to acknowledge that. They suppress it. They push the truth away in their own unrighteousness. And when they do that, you allow them to have it their way. Why you haven't allowed every single human being to have it their way is simply a reflection of your merciful grace. Because we all certainly deserve it. We deserve to have exactly what we were from the very beginning in our dead natures. We deserve to have hell. And yet you came and you became man so that you might live perfectly on our behalf. So that when you died an undeserving death because you didn't deserve to die since you were perfect. We who deserve it because we're so imperfect. Might live by faith in him who is perfect. Grace. We are saved by grace through faith. Help us to live that out as we understand these things about our future. That others might know Christ and might know the joy that we have every day because of these things. We love you. We ask your blessing upon each one here. In the name of Jesus Christ, your son, we pray. Amen.